social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy Leary. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello Tim. Happy me. Hi. Um, I'm drinking. Drumroll please. Vodka. <sighs> Vodka. Vodziara. Biekaya. Politra, Voidkanedu. Mm, yes. <laughs> I'm going to teach you those. <laughs> what did he say? Teach you those in a minute. What, is what did it? I say? Yeah. What What is this? I will tell you. Um, tell me. Tell me in what form you're drinking vodka first of all. Well, I really wanted to be brave and say I was drinking like a nice clean Russian vodka, because mm-hmm. I would like to talk about Russian vodka today. Uh, but I'm just drinking a fruit punch flavoured vodka. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you did the wuss out version. I did the wuss out version. I had a heavy weekend. It's now Tuesday and my body is not ready for vodka. <laughs> yeah, we were supposed to record this on Sunday, which is our probably most usual day. But um, we've had to delay by two days because <laughs> someone went on a bender. And I don't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> Which means I am now drinking neat vodka uh, on a Tuesday night. Wow. Sorry, <laughs> not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I, yeah, I've gone for the full hardest version I can get. I've got neat vodka, which has just come out of the freezer in my little marble shot glass so that it stays sub-zero temperature. You were doing it very well. Aren't I? How is it Although, going down? Um... You know, I won't I won't go into the flavour profiles, but what I will say is it was definitely a good idea to put it in the freezer and have it that way. It does make a difference. It's mm. infinitely more quaffable. Um, on top of that, uh, although I knew we were talking about Russian vodka, I did actually buy um, an English vodka. Actually, I say <laughs> English. It's probably Welsh. Oh, I know it's hot. It's Herefordshire. It's uh, it's half and half. Half and half. <laughs> Mine's from Swansea, so I've got um, Chase. Chase Vodka, which is actually um, the Tyrrell's Crisps company. That's their vodka. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's so they did actually, when they launched, it was these are the same potatoes we make our crisps with. And they called it Tyrrell's mm. Vodka for a trial period. Um, but they changed it to Chase, who's the owner of, of Tyrrell's, I think, and he wanted to put his name on it. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, it's an English potato vodka. So yeah, we decided rather than vodka as a really broad subject, because it is obviously a massive spirit, we thought we'd focus specifically on Russian vodka, which <laughs> will explain the words that I used at the beginning of uh, the session. They do call it vodka, but there's an affectionate term for it they have as well, which is vodziara. Mm-hmm. Vodziara. And then they also sometimes call it the pale stuff, which is being kaya. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's also a word which means half a litre, but only referring to vodka, <laughs> <laughs> which is politra. Politra. And then there's a rather nice turn of phrase in Russian, <laughs> which is, it, it sounds like, what can I do? Uh, void can I do? Which means I'll find vodka. <laughs> <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? I'll find vodka. Those are my happy words in Russian for vodka. <laughs> if in doubt, find uh, vodka. Exactly. What can I do? Find vodka. All right. So what is vodka? Uh, I feel like many people instinctively know this, but don't really know it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is just a clear, distilled alcoholic beverage spirit that originates either in Poland or Russia or Sweden or somewhere thereabouts in the modern equivalent. And it is almost entirely ethanol, pure alcohol and water. <laughs> but you do get traces of impurities, um, which or impurities or flavorings, if you like, um, which is how, you know, vodkas claim they're going to distinguish their flavor from one another. But it really is very small. Um, traditionally, it's made from distilling the liquid of cereal grains that have been fermented and then potatoes have arisen as a substitute in more recent times as well. I say more recent times, I mean, you know, since potatoes were introduced <laughs> in the 16th century or whatever it was. Um, but modern brands as well, they'll be using fruits, honey, maple sap as a base. There's a real difference in approach that the European Union pretty much says, yeah, it should be cereal, grains or potatoes. Um, the US say it can be anything. They're like, it's it's basically a flavor. They, I think they call it a tasteless spirit distilled mm -hmm. from anything. Whereas Europe, because obviously it consists of the vodka belt, is like, it's not tasteless and it can't be from anything. They're a little bit more Puritan about it. Uh, since the 1890s, standard vodkas have been 40% alcohol by volume. Uh, the EU established a minimum content for it, it's 37 and a half. Um, and in the US, that's 40%. Um, as I say, traditionally, it is drunk neat in sort of the home of vodka, the way I'm having it, chilled. Uh, no water, ice or mixers. But I would, I suspect that most people, at least outside of the vodka belts, uh, do have it as, as mixers and in cocktails. Vodka comes out of the still above 95% ABV. That's one of the qualifying things you have to have for vodka. Mm-hmm. So when you distilled it, it's above 95%. And then it's cut with water to meet whatever proof you desire, which is, you know, 37.5 or 40% or higher. Um, so it is vodka, no matter what you've started with, really. As I say, it is because of the way it's repeatedly distilled and repeatedly filtered, um, which is another thing, you know, brands like to lean on. It's, it's been distilled this many times. It's been filtered through these amazing substances. That just makes it more and more tasteless. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to wonder really whether one brand is better than another. And I know there have been a few studies, blind taste testings of studies on this that have come to the conclusion there really is very little between any of them. Therefore, it's a marketer's dream as a drink, really, because that's almost entirely what you're building this on. There isn't a lot of flavor to go through. Mm. So um, lots of marketing opportunities in vodka, I would say. 
keep your eye out for. Will do. Um, vodka as a word comes from the Slavic, um, which uh, means little water. So uh, vod, vod is uh, water, vodka, little water. It's recorded for the first time in 1405 in court documents in Poland. At the time, that referred to medicines and cosmetic products rather than the drink. Mm -hmm. So the word vodka predates the drink vodka. But there were drinks that were like vodka then. Uh, in Old Polish, it was called, uh, it was gozalka, gozec, meaning to burn, uh, which is also the source of the Ukrainian version as well, orilka. So the word vodka is written in Cyrillic, the, the Russian alphabet, in 1533 in relation to a medicinal drink brought from Poland to Russia um, by the merchants of the, the Kievian Rus, who are like the, the early inhabitants of that area. They were Vikings, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting to sort of see that there's, there's roots of the words like water or burn, because you find that in other alcohols as well like like whiskey and the root origins of that sort of stuff and the way that vodka was had back then when they were meaning like this burning wine and it was medicinal it would would have had lots of um flavors and herbs and things in it and actually it would have been more like absinthe so when we did the absinthe episode we're like it's highly alcoholic they put lots of herbs in originally it was more like a medicinal tincture i think that's what we're getting here with this version of vodka as far as i can tell um, there are other references, I went through kind of Polish and Ukrainian, the references in Russia to it before that. We know that there was a type of distilled liquor that came to Russia in the late 14th century. Um, there were these Genoese, uh, Genoa's northwest Italy and some other places, Corsica and so forth. Ambassadors brought over what they called aqua vitae, the water of life, mm-hmm. which we more commonly known as whiskey over in, in this part of the world. So they brought uh, Aquavitae to Moscow, presented it to the Grand Duke Dmitry Donskoy in 1386. And that was actually made from grape must. Mm-hmm. And that was thought to be a concentrate of wine, or they would call it the spirit of wine, spiritus vini in Latin. And that's where we get spirit from in other European languages. Like we call it spirit here. So it's the spirit of wine. Coming mm-hmm. from Italy. And it's really interesting because there's there's actually um, a fair amount of... There's legal case with something like Siroc vodka at the moment because it's made with grapes. And mm-hmm. the the vodka belt in Europe is saying, well, you can't make vodka from grapes. It's got to be from <laughs> cereal, grain and potatoes. But actually, so one of the earlier references we find to it in Russia is from grapes. How many times <laughs> have we had this kind of conversation on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> People being precious about their provenance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So according to legends, around 1430, there was a monk named Isadora from a monastery inside the Kremlin in Moscow. Yeah. Who made a recipe of the first Russian vodka. It said that they had kind of uh, special knowledge of the the distillation devices and created this new higher quality type of alcoholic beverage from either the grape must or the the herbal tinctures and it was called bread wine that's how Mm. they referred to it as initially known um and so for a long time that bread wine was produced in in the grand duchy of moscow exclusively Uh, no other principality across the Rus 
And so it really centred vodka in Moscow, or bread wine as it was named there. Um, it was probably too expensive for um, the common folk at that time. It, only the aristocrats would have had like that grape wine or the burning wine. It was usually diluted with water as well, so it would be about half as 24% or so ABV um, before drink or less before drinking. So it was mostly sold in taverns and it was quite expensive. So it wasn't really like a drink for the people at that point. The first example we get of vodka, as a word, being used in an official Russian document with its modern meaning is from the Empress Elizabeth in 1751 when they were regulating the ownership of vodka distilleries. So by the 1860s, uh, so they, they, the state took on ownership, and this, this changes a lot throughout this period of history, <laughs> but by the 1860s, because the government policy of promoting the consumption of state-manufactured uh, vodka had come into effect, it was the drink of choice for a lot of Russians. They were like, this is patriotic, this supports our country, come and drink it. Um, that's also when we find it entering the Russian dictionary in its current meeting, uh, meaning around that time. And then in 1863, the government monopoly on vodka production is repealed. Uh, and what that means is that private companies can set up individual distillers and the prices plummet. So it makes the vodka even more available to the low-income citizens. At that point, they are realising that the taxes on these private companies and on vodka will be a key element in how they can actually fund their government. Mm -hmm. uh, the czarist Russia, as it was at that time, it provided up to 40% of the state revenue, mm -hmm. which is obviously massive. <laughs> um, and really that kind of consumption of vodka and its... Um, oversight by the state, let's put it, has really continued. In 1911, vodka was 89% of all the alcohol consumed in Russia. That's just before the Russian Revolution, um, or sort of really during it all kicking off. And then today, it's still probably somewhere around 70%. So really still a very popular alcohol ever since, um, ever since the government of Russia made it sort of a state-owned <laughs> state thing that they encouraged all their all their um, inhabitants and workers to take part in. So that kind of is how vodka came to be as a spirit and a word and why it's um, popular in Russia. And I will go on to talk about some specific Russian distilleries uh, in a bit, but it's quite another lengthy tract of history, I think. And I cut out all the stuff explaining what the Russian Revolution was, so you should think yourself lucky. Because I, I didn't really look into the history of it, but I did look into kind of modern, current day kind of attitudes towards vodka in Russia. And it's quite interesting because obviously one of the first things we think of when we think of Russia is vodka. Mm. And I think they aren't proud of that fact. <laughs> so they're trying to kind of squash that kind of feeling that they're just all drunk on vodka the whole time so they tr they're trying to kind of create vodka to be a, a more of a kind of poor man's drink um they're trying to push a lot more you know other spirits wines sparkling wines so they refer to sparkling wine as champagne um and so yeah that whenever there's a a celebration to be had they say oh you should drink champagne or this is much you know it's classier don't drink vodka 
Um, so as I mentioned earlier, the um, they like to drink when there's something to celebrate. Generally, they they tend to not just want to, like we do, have a glass of wine to switch off or just have the odd drink socially. That's not the case in Russia. They like to drink vodka when they're celebrating. So a birthday, a wedding, Christmas. But it can also be something as simple as... I think one of the examples I actually read was, um, you know, somebody completing school or college. <laughs> it's very <laughs> much like, yay, let's drink. <laughs> um, so there's always a reason. They're always celebrating when they do drink, which is why they go in hard. Uh, so when they drink their vodka, they are drinking it straight. So commonly it's served chilled by the bottle. So again, tick for you for putting it in the freezer. Uh, so when it's served, um, one person on the table is put in charge of pouring for the group. And they then have to lead the toast as well. And that's quite a, a strict rule. Whoever's in charge of pouring for the group, they have to be the pourer for the whole bottle. They, they think it's a bad omen if you change pourers. Um, and they have to toast be, be before every drink as well. Um, so they often drink to health, to women, to healthy women. <laughs> as long as there's something to toast, they will toast. So how to drink it? Um, it's quite simple. Exhale deeply. Take your drink. And then eat. Okay, I can see you doing it on camera. Done. Yeah. Your um your tables would be laden with plates of snacks called zakuski, and they're to be consumed between every single shot. And these snacks consist of they're they're always savoury. They can be all kinds of different things. Um, but more common ones are pickles, herring, pig fat, bread, caviar, salted cucumber potatoes, onions, um, I've seen pickled watermelon in some of the stuff I've looked into. So I think a lot of them are designed to be a, to kind of distract from certain flavours. I think they're also designed to soak up the alcohol. It's also been uh, known that they will sniff the bread as well. <laughs> so after hey, the hey. shot, they sniff the bread. <laughs> no euphemisms here. <laughs> bread sniffer. <laughs> um but don't feel compelled to finish the plates right away. It's it's kind of designed to be hours and hours and hours. You just sit there and drink your shots and, and eat your snacks. So the goal of a big night out when you're drinking vodka with Russians is to purely just not pass out. <laughs> uh, you're supposed to stay relatively sober. So I think I'd be going in hard on the pickles, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but that's only the start of it. So it's not as simple as just taking shots and eating pickles. There's a whole bunch of etiquette. Uh, so I I could go on for ages, but I'll, I've picked out some of the more interesting ones. So the first one, you can't take a break between the first and second shots of vodka. It's it seen to be, it's like livening your body up into it and you're, yeah, I'm out on a drink. So again, toasts are absolutely necessary and the only rule to follow is to not to fill your own glass for yourself. That's considered very, very rude. So it's the one who pronounces the toasts is responsible for filling with vodka. Drinking it pure, as I've already mentioned. Uh, no juice, no soda, no energy drinks. Uh, I also read while I was reading into this that um, if you're not a big drinker, there will be some wine on the table if you're not a drinker. 
<laughs> you just need a break from the booze, have some wine. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you you are allowed to say no to um, to to rounds. I think because, as I mentioned, the goal is to not get absolutely shit faced and pass out, is to stay relatively sober. So if you are feeling, I'll sit this one out. That's not frowned upon at all. But if you turn up and say I'm not drinking, they're like, what? Um, so penalty shot Um, so a punishment if you turn up late to the party is you'll be given a penalty shot which is quite tame because you're taking shots all night (laughs) Um, but it was the history of this that was quite interesting so apparently this was started by a guy as a means to train his lazy staff that used to come in late to the office uh, but he didn't just force them to drink a shot. Apparently, he forced them to drink a 1.5 litre glass of vodka as a form of punishment throughout the day for being late. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I'd like to think it's not. With regards to empty bottles, um, if you finished a bottle of vodka, it goes straight on the floor. They're quite strict mm-hmm. about that. They don't like to have it on table there are is lots that just sorry as, as you say is that just so that other people don't get annoyed by picking it up thinking it's full <laughs> is that there's, why um, there's lots of different stories um so some say it's a bad omen some say how um if you were in a restaurant and they were trying to work out the bill they'd just count the number of empty bottles on the table and then charge you so by by means of hiding how many you've had they'd go on the floor under the table so it's not as uh, innocent as you thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'm like, oh, does it save social awkwardness? <laughs> nope. No, it's about not paying a bill. It saves money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually that sounds more like it. I'm not I was gonna say I don't know any Russian people who are afraid of social awkwardness. <laughs> um so as I mentioned, it's, you're more than welcome to say no to any round when you're feeling the pressure or you're feeling a bit drunk. But you can never say no to the last shot. Um, so if you're ever invited to party in somebody's home in Russia, the homeowner will always offer you a drink just before you leave. Like literally whilst you're looking for your shoes and your coat and you're getting ready, you get mm-hmm. offered the last shot. Um, sometimes it's referred to as a lucky shot. Uh, but it's also termed as one shot for the road, as we probably would know it. But it's also kind of, it's like an alcohol test for the person leaving the party. So what they have to do is drink the shot, and then they have to balance the shot on a walking stick handle or the handle of the door. They have to balance it somewhere. And if it falls off, they're advised to stay for the night and avoid the bad road. Oh, I see. So. <laughs> That's... Yeah. You know, that's probably as safety conscious as they get. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, another one. Keep pouring until it's finished. So, as we know, Russians drink vodka quite fast. Uh, There won't be a half-finished bottle or a not-yet-opened bottle on the table for that long. So, you either need to keep drinking or just ask for a skip when it's poured because they are keen to just keep it going. You're not going to be in a scenario of... 
you know, somebody pouring and you just go in, oh, no, and then the table goes, ah, we'll, we'll wait. <laughs> they're, mm-hmm. they're just going to keep drinking. They keep it very fast. Um, and also, as we said, according to etiquette, the one who is pouring must pour until it's empty. You can't change the pourer. Um, it's believed that if you do change that pourer until the bottle is empty, that um, either the table are going to get far too drunk or an unusual fight is going to break out. Um, so, yeah, if you are given the task of pouring, make sure you do it to the very end. Because if anyone gets wasted or fights, it's your fault because you didn't do your job. <laughs> wow, what, what a responsibility. I know. Um, so I've got two left. Um, uh-huh. Last but one is wash the purchase. I quite like this one. Wash the purchase is technically used when somebody buys something expensive. So like a new car or something like that. Um, wash the purchase stands for not actually obviously washing it in vodka, but it's like having a drink to celebrate that. So mm-hmm. like you have a housewarming, I guess. Yeah, or, um, or wet the baby's head. Or wet the baby's head, which is not an expensive purchase, but, well, I guess it's expensive. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they do it. Uh, they believe that doing it will uh, ward off the envious eyes of the neighbour. And nowadays, people do it just to share their happiness of having a new purchase at home. <laughs> so, <laughs> washing the purchase is still a thing they do. Uh, last one, drink for three. So if you drink vodka alone in Russia, you are classed as an alcoholic. Oh, is, am I te- I'm not alone. I'm with you in the mm, virtual pub. Well, we are not I was three. just thinking that the chances of me being able to either, you know, down a drink or finish my <laughs> bottle are very slim. It's not going to happen. Well, um, it, it's still, it's kind of, it's got to be at least a trio. So there's a popular phrase in Russia that means think think for three. This phrase is used when two people call out to the third one for drinks. Uh, so previously, way back when, uh, a bottle of vodka used to cost about three rubles. So by having three people, it was easy to split the cost. Mm. Um, so yeah, traditionally, um, a bottle of vodka would cost three rubles. So by calling a third party over to drink, you'd only have to split it. Well, you'd split it three ways and pay one mm-hmm. each. Um, however, again, it's not the case. It's a bit more expensive than that these days. So drink for three refers to drinking with good company as more the merrier. Hmm. Hmm. Lovely. I like the idea of choosing your company based on how well it splits the bar bill. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. I feel like I can understand the I, I I was feeling quite proud for, you know, doing it Russian style by having my vodka out of the freezer. But I feel like there's quite a lot in that approach that I'm missing out now. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, no, I am. I am doing the English version. Yes, I am. Yeah. You need you need to stop sipping. Start chinning. <laughs> yeah, no. Start Again. chinning. Start eating pickles. Start toasting to healthy women and new cars. <laughs> <laughs> None of that sounds like my behavior. None of it. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you want to know about Russian distilleries? I would love to. Good. There was really that was the only answer I could possibly accept. And if you didn't <laughs> say it, I'd have to edit it in. Um, so what I've done, rather than go, um, rather than go one company at a time, I've tried to <laughs> divide it up into some kind of rough timeline, chronological order. So mm-hmm. let's see how it goes. Um, we're gonna start with Smirnoff. Uh, so 
Pyotr Arsenyevich Smirnov, born in 1831. Uh, he founded his vodka distillery in Moscow in 1864. So, if you remember, that's one year after the repeal of the government monopoly. And mm-hmm. they were trading under the name of P.A. Smirnov. Um, he did quite a lot of things that were pioneering in the field. So uh, charcoal filtration being one of them. You know, I said how um, marketers were always saying, well, we're filtered by this and we're filtered by that. So in the 1870s, he pioneered charcoal filtration. He became the first um, one to use newspaper advertising as well. Okay. He really kind of put the message out there, did the first newspaper adverts. Also gave charitable contributions to the clergy um, and that was to try and stifle their anti-vodka sermons. So they were preaching against the evils of vodka and he was like, well, maybe I could donate to a charitable cause and maybe you could stop doing that. Um, he was also, as far as I can tell, kind of a really early example of guerrilla marketing because he would pay people to go into their local taverns and buy Smyrna vodka in them. Uh, and try and get the word out by doing that and he would invite people for free tastings so he the, you know the essentially the reason why he was so popular is not necessarily i'm not saying it's not but not necessarily because it had a better taste but he put so much effort into marketing it it's like mm-hmm. real extreme efforts uh have you ever paid off the clergy to get your your drinks out in the market in some shape or form, probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so he managed to capture two-thirds of the Moscow market in two years, by 1886. His brand was repeatedly the favourite of the Tsar. Mm-hmm. And then when Peter died in 1898, he was then succeeded by his third son, Vladimir Smirnov. And under Vladimir Smirnov, the company continued to flourish. It flourished. It went up to 4 million cases of vodka per year. I mentioned Vladimir Smirnov once before in the podcast, which was in reference, in the Halloween episode, in reference to a potential origin for the Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. I said a bartender in Europe created a, a vodka and tomato juice drink and they couldn't pronounce his name properly, so they called it Bloody Mary for Vladimir. <laughs> Possibly true, possibly not. But anyway, I've mentioned him before. Right, so that's where we're up to with Smirnoff, right? Now, the Moscow State Wine Warehouse. Um, just because the market was opened up to private companies, it didn't mean that the state went away. It was still heavily invested in it. So in 1901, the Moscow State Wine Warehouse Number 1 was founded as a state-sanctioned vodka and wine distillery in Moscow. Uh, the distillery was huge, it employed 1,500 people. They planned to produce 600,000 state vodka buckets per year. I think a bucket is 18 ounces. Um, however, only a week after opening, they had to expand their plans because of high demand. So instead, it produced 2.1 million in the first year of operation. So it went up a lot. People loved it. Um, At the beginning of their production, they divided the vodka into three quality divisions. So the lowest quality was simple, then it went up to improved, and then it was Boyarskaya. Boyarskaya was, um, in the feudal system, was like one rank below the prince. 
Mm-hmm. So very good quality. Um, in 1904, the Tsar nationalized vodka again. <laughs> As I say, it keeps doing and praying here. Um, so that meant that Vladimir Smirnov was forced to sell his factory and his brand because there couldn't be any private companies doing vodka anymore. I think this was largely, you know, this is only three years after they set up their state sanctioned warehouse. And I think its success and the money they made from it made them think, oh, we should just do that for everyone. Um, from October 1914, due to Russia's participation in the First World War, the distillery's production was cut down and it was close to the civilian market because they put in a dry law. So it's, there was prohibition, essentially. Production continued for the military, for the foreign markets, and for medical applications. So this was not popular move at a not popular time of the war. Um, even though Russia was successful when it entered the First World War and its, its battles against um, Germany and so forth, there was a lot of loss of life because they needed to fund the war. This is actually, this is me going into Russian Revolution now. I'll try and make it quick. <laughs> I just want to explain it. Because they needed to fund the war, the government printed lots of money for the military, which meant that it um, the, uh, the values went crazy. It meant that um, people couldn't afford to buy foods anymore. The inflation rate was super high. And one of the effects of that was that the enormously rural population of Russia that was growing all this grain to make vodka, instead of selling it for Mm -hmm. worthless money, they just kept it for themselves and fed themselves through the tough times. So actually it was the people in the city who weren't really getting food. They were starving. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have much in the way of vodka, for example. And um, this sort of starvation, lack of money, all this sort of stuff, is one of the things that really kick-started the Russian Revolution, which led mm-hmm. to the of the aristocracy, uh, or of the monarchy, the, the, the czars. So um, actually what turned out is that because the currency was so unstable, and actually continued to be through a lot of the 20th century, right up to the dissolution of the USSR, vodka was actually a more stable currency. People knew what vodka was worth. So they would trade vodka for, you know, goods and services because it was a more stable currency. And you see that quite a lot. And even today that persists. You can still go into Russia and pay for services with vodka. (laughs) Um, So the Moscow distillery at the time of the war, it became uh, the disused part of the um, distillery became a military hospital, which was handy because they could use uh, the vodka that they distilled for medicinal purposes. Mm -hmm. And... um, it was until 1923 that the um, pre-war production of vodka was able to be restored to the distillery as you know, a state-owned enterprise of the now Soviet Union. Um, so during this, the October Revolution, the you know 1917, so around this period where they're you know, um, they're going dry and then they're, they're coming back from uh, the revolution. The Smirnov family had to flee. So they left the country. Vladimir Smirnov moved to what is now Istanbul, was then Constantinople. Don't do the song. Um, <laughs> Istanbul. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't. Um, <laughs> so I was Vladimir. doing the other one. What were you doing? Um... 
I'm gonna have to Google it because I always get it wrong. Because you know the song Istanbul by um. I always get the name wrong. No, that's why I'm pausing. <laughs> I thought you can do Istanbul, it's Constantinople. That's RJD two. There's a there was a an artist I was really into when I was in uni called RJD two, and they had a song called Istanbul. Istanbul. I thought that was a character from Star Wars. Yeah, well, that's why I had to Google it, because I always used to say R2-D2 and people would laugh at me. <laughs> anyway, good segue. So, um, <laughs> so Vladimir Smirnov has moved to Constantinople, now Istanbul, and he re-establishes the Smirnov factory in 1920. Now he's escaped. Um, four years after that, he moved to uh, Lviv, which used to be in Poland, now in Ukraine. Um, and started to sell the so it gets so complicated geographically. Anyway, um, he started to sell the vodka under a new but similar name, so no longer Smirnov with a V, but Smirnov with a double F, which is the French spelling of the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sold quite well, but not as well. Obviously, as in his heyday in Russia prior to 1904, when he had to sell it off. But it did well enough that they could open another distillery in Paris in 1925. But uh, as I say, the company wasn't doing so well. But it had its new French spelling, so it had that going for it. Um, in the 1930s then, Vladimir met a guy called Rudolf Kunet. Or again, I should say. And he was a Russian who had emigrated to America in the 1920s and became a successful businessman in New York City. And Kunet had been a supplier of grains to Smirnov in Moscow before the revolution. And then in 33, Vladimir sold Kunit the right to produce Smirnov in North America. So Kunit returned to the United States, quit his sales job, and um, established the first North American vodka distillery in Bethel, Connecticut. Um, and that was just after the end of Prohibition, 1933. But the business in America um, wasn't great either. It wasn't as successful as they'd hoped for. Um, they really couldn't pay for the sales licenses. And so they had to then go and talk to John Martin, who's the president of a company called Hublin. And they specialized in the import and export of, um, of spirits, of liquors and foreign foods. And so Martin bought the rights to Smirnoff in 1939, just was heading into the Second World War. And everyone thought he was a bit crazy for doing that because there clearly wasn't a vodka market in America. Americans drink whiskey um, and they were unfamiliar with vodka, so the sales didn't really take off. So what he realized is that you could market it as white whiskey. Okay. <laughs> so they changed it to wh- using whiskey corks. They branded it as white whiskey with no taste and no smell. And the sales really picked up in America at that point. Mm-hmm. All about the marketing with vodka. You love a good marketing bash. I love it. Well, I know, but it's just, it's <laughs> so prevalent in the drinks <laughs> industry, you know? <laughs> it's not really a bash, to be honest. I think it's, I think it's like the only, one of the only things that's interesting about vodka. Because vodka is, you know, like the only process is let's distill it, let's filter it. There aren't a ton of flavour profiles and there isn't that to talk about. So all you really are talking about is its marketing, its reputation, and what the government did with it, you know, mm. which I think this episode is sort of pointing out. <laughs> um, 
Okay, during the Second World War, that's where we're up to. We were in America. We're going back to um, Russia, sort of. During the Second World War, in addition to vodka production, the Moscow distillery also produced Molotov cocktails. Oh, yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you know what a Molotov cocktail is? Uh, Not from an alcoholic sense, no. (laughs) Well, what other sense do you know it in? Uh, like a Call of Duty sense. <laughs> yes, which is? Um, it's like a petrol bomb, essentially. Yeah. So that's <laughs> it. That's what they were producing. They were producing mm-hmm. flammable, flammable weapons for the Soviet mm-hmm. war effort. That That is what it is. It's never been. It's never been a sipping cocktail. Oh, damn. I got excited then. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, the distillery actually during the Second World War was severely damaged by German bombing. Um, it ignited all the flammable products, which you think would put an end to it. But um, despite the heavy damage, they continued production. They carried on. They were actually ordered the um, the Banner of the State Defense Committee award for their contributions during the war, during the Second World War. But the term Molotov cocktail did not originate in Russia, mm-hmm. per se. It was actually coined by the Finns, by Finland, during well, what they called the Winter War, but during the Second World War. Um, and it was a pejorative term to the Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov, who was um, one of the architects of the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, mm-hmm. which is um, basically it was what it was the pact that allowed... didn't really allow them but I can't think of a better word the Soviets and the Nazis to divide up Poland right Mm -hmm. and that was signed in 1939 so he was not popular in amongst anyone who wasn't Soviet or Nazi and so the Finns came up with this term and it comes off the back of Molotov's propaganda that was produced during the Winter War um, when he declared on Soviet radio where he used to do this that the bombing missions that were being held over Finland were actually airborne humanitarian food deliveries for their starving neighbours. So they were dropping bombs. They were saying they were delivering food. So wow. the Finns sarcastically dubbed the Soviet cluster bombs as Molotov bread baskets. Uh-huh. So that's where it comes in first. They say, oh, the bombs are Molotov bread baskets, apparently. Mm-hmm. And then when the um, firebomb bottles came into use to attack the Soviet tanks. The Finns called it Molotov cocktails as a mm-hmm. drink to go with the food parcels. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah, so that's where it comes from. Very, very dark sense of humour, the Finns. Uh, <laughs> all right, we are post-war. We are post-Second World War. The Moscow State Wine Warehouse uh, decides this is the time to release a new brand. They release Stoliknaya, which mm-hmm. you probably have heard of as a Russian brand. There's a lot of confusion as to when it was actually birthed. Uh, the earliest confirmed production date is 1948. The label design comes before 46. Um, there's a trademark dated 1938. It was probably created by a specific person in 44. Anyway, something around there, something around towards the end of the Second World War during it. But we do know that in 1953, it was introduced to the international trade shows. Um, and received gold medals and burn and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, because we're in Soviet Union territory at this time, it was made in Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, for export. Uh, in 1972, Pepsi, PepsiCo, 
<laughs> struck an agreement with the Soviet Union government in which PepsiCo was granted the exportation and Western marketing rights to Stolichnaya. Um, and in exchange, they would import, they would have their, they would have Pepsi Cola imported and marketed in Soviet. So they actually became the first American consumer product to be produced and marketed and sold in the USSR. So it was a straight swap between Pepsi Cola and Stolichnaya vodka. And then we're in the 80s. The Moscow um, State Distillery Warehouse Number One changes its name in the eighties, eighty-seven, to what is now its current name, the Moscow Distillery Crystal or Crystal, Crystal. which has its own brand of vodka as well, Crystal. Uh, in nineteen ninety-three, following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the distillery becomes a private company, and that threw up all sorts of new problems. So since 2003, Stolichnaya trademark has been the subject of dispute between two different distributors. And it's predominantly the, the SPI group and the Russian stained O, which is outside of Russia, and the Russian state-owned Sodius Plodo import. Um, <laughs> the SPI group has held the rights uh, to be the legal successor as a result of privatization, whereas the Russian government says that privatization never fully went into effect. Which means there's two versions of Stolichnaya on the market. We get the non-Russian one. Um, you, to, in order to get the Russian one, you'll either have to be in Russia or the Benelux region. So yeah. Bel- Belgium, Netherlands, that kind of thing. Yeah, you will get the Russian version still there. But there, mm. are, there are two kind of disputed versions of it. Um, we're not done with Smirnoff. We're still in 80s, 90s territory changes hands quite a few times its ownership throughout that period until eventually it lands with Diageo in 1997 as so many alcohols we've <laughs> we've explored have um, meanwhile in Russia at that time Smirnov vodka was launched in 1991 by Boris Smirnov who's a direct descendant of the original uh, Peter Smirnov and it's labelled at first, and remember, like, this is the V version, not the double F version, which we would know. Um, it's first labelled as table wine <laughs> rather <laughs> than a vodka. And that's to try and avoid any conflict with Smirnoff. Uh, there were lots of lawsuits and <laughs> it resulted in Diageo's entire brand being uh, banned in the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is like a lot of the former USSR countries between 2002 and 2006 while that was going on and then they reached an agreement after 2006 where the Smirnov <laughs> vodka is a sister product of Smirnov vodka so they're sort of jointly owned by Diageo and Russia Smirnov vodka which is not Smirnov vodka <laughs> gotcha okay <laughs> Um, right there's uh <laughs> this is why i think the russian vodka story is so interesting it kind of it comes in and out of state ownership it comes in and out of russia like it's really challenging to their own identity and what we think of them i think um so in 2006 when diageo uh, struck that deal um they said that smirnoff vodka was the best-selling distilled spirit brand in the world uh, which it was that got usurped in 2015. Do you want to have a guess at what usurped Smyrna Fodka? That's the best-selling spirit. Oh, 
Best bet is spirit or vodka? Spirit. Gin? Wait, 2015? 2015, a spirit brand as well. A spirit brand. brand, sorry, not just a category. Okay, a brand in 2015. Please tell me it was Jägermeister. <laughs> it was not. Oh, I, I single-handedly would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, I'm going to have one more guess. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love when you're like, let's just pause the podcast so oh. I can have a thing. No, I don't know. <laughs> Gre- <laughs> was it Grey Goose? <laughs> no, it was not. I will tell you. It was a brand called Officer's Choice. What? Which is a whiskey made in India. So Indian whiskey is now the world's biggest selling spirit brand. Officer's Why have choice. I never heard of that? Probably because we're not one of the uh, one and a half billion people living in India. I would imagine. Uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> you gotta you gotta remember how massive those Asian markets are compared to what yeah, we've yeah, got. Of course, but I felt I was the course. same when I I was like, what what is that? With all the toing and froing, as I said, of what is a Russian vodka, because all these ones that they claim to be were sort of also made in Ukraine or, or Latvia during the USSR or had splintered off into state and not state owned and all that kind of business. So off the back of that really emerges Russian standard vodka in 1998. Uh, so it's coming after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and it wants to emerge as like the new proper Russian vodka. Um, and that's that's sort of what it's going for in its branding. It says it uses winter grain from the Russian steppes, uh, milled and fermented. The spirit is distilled four times for the original, six times for platinum, while the imperious spirit is distilled eight times. The spirits are blended with water from Lake Ladoga, that's a Lake Ladoga is near St. Petersburg, so they're actually based near there rather than Moscow. But they say like that was their reason for going there, because the lake has one of the um, softest waters naturally available. Mm-hmm. So it's then filtered four times through charcoal. Platinum receives two more filtrations through silver. And Imperia, two more filtrations through quartz from the Ural Mountains. So I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you could not get a more Russian-sounding branded vodka um, than Russian <laughs> Standard that was launched in '98. But you can see how they spotted that gap in the market and going how all these other brands had kind of become confused over the years. Mm-hmm. Russian Standard vodka has a marketing claim on it that says, "In are you ready? I'm about to slag off marketing again." Um, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> it says, in 1894, Dmitry Mendeleev, the greatest scientist in all Russia. I mean, they're not they're not wrong. I said it like that. But I mean, famously, he was the periodic table guy. He was brilliant. Anyway, um, it says, the greatest scientist in all Russia received the decree to set the imperial quality standard for Russian vodka. And the Russian standard was born. The vodka is compliant with the highest quality of Russian vodka approved by the Royal Government Commission, headed by Mendeleev in 1894. Do you think that's true? No. Of course it isn't. It's marketing. No. no. It's based, but it is a popular myth. It's based on this popular myth of, uh, that Mendeleev's 1865 doctoral dissertation, which was called A Discourse on the Combination of Alcohol and Water, which I love, you know, remembering the guy that created the modern periodic table, his, his doctoral dissertation was on that. 
Um, but it says that it contained a statement that 38% is the ideal strength of vodka and that the number was then rounded up to 40 to simplify it for the calculation of alcohol tax. But the reality is that Mendeleev's dissertation was about alcohol concentrations over 70% and he never wrote anything about vodka. And <laughs> in addition to that, the 40% standard strength was introduced um, already in 1843 when Mendeleev was nine years old. Mendeleev himself also did not drink vodka. <laughs> he, was, he, he was scared of becoming an alcoholic like his brothers, so he didn't drink vodka. Instead, he preferred red wine. Oh, sounds quaint. Yep. So there you go. That kind of brings us up to present day, the most famous kind of Russian, is it, is it not Russian brands um, of <laughs> vodka. Quite dramatic, really? isn't it? Yeah. God, what a roller coaster. Mm. <laughs> Can I talk about flavoured vodka? Or is that too... Please. Wild. <laughs> do. No, it's not wild. I need, I need a break from trying to piece together that enormous type line so I can uh, <laughs> sip a little bit more vodka. It's no sipping, you've got to nick it. I no, I am gonna sip it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, see, I looked. I wanted to look into flavored got vodka because obviously I'm drinking one right now. There's a lot of them out there, um, but I wanted to look back into the more kind of traditional approaches to it, um, and they still do it quite a lot actually in in Russia. Um, people do it at home. There's a lot of recipes out there. So it was it was referred to a lot more when I was doing my research as like vodka infusions than flavored vodka. Um, and it's traditional to each area of vodka production. So, for example, like the U Ukrainians will produce a vodka that's infused with Saint John's Wort and Nordic countries like to add herbs to their vodka. That gives a nice drink of the summer. Um, <laughs> I did look into the Polish versions and all I could find is that <laughs> they just like it very strong with a 95% ABV. <laughs> so mm. Poland is just like, no, that nonsense. Just give us really strong vodka. But anyway, Russia was order of the day. So Russia... Um, they do a lot of infusions. I think the most traditional one is um, honey and pepper. That's the one they're most well known for. And that's an infusion that they also use for medicinal purposes as well. So quite often if you feel like you've got a, a cold coming, you'll have your honey and pepper vodka, wrap a scarf around your neck and look after yourself. <laughs> um, but I found... Uh, a guide essentially that's uh a lot of people in russia follow with regards to infusing their vodka so you buy an inexpensive vodka then you filter it five to eight times so you mentioned that earlier about the filtration so by filtering um an inexpensive vodka five to eight times it's said to put it into a kind of category around like gray goose that kind of quality vodka so five or eight times filtering it. Uh, next step would be, be to fill an airtight jar with your fresh ingredients. You pour the vodka over them and put it in the fridge. Now, you taste that at regular intervals, starting at day four. 
because obviously some things are going to infuse faster than others. Generally, maximum kind of infusion is seven days, but anything from four to seven, you start tasting just to make sure that it's not overpowering or ruining itself. Uh, once you're happy with the flavour, strain out the additives, put them into a bottle and refrigerate them until you're ready to drink. Um, so some of the plop... Oh, plop. <laughs> popular. <laughs> some of the popular flavours... Um, Basil tomato vodka. So you would add to your jar a small bunch of basil, two or three small tomatoes left whole, and you'll infuse them in your vodka for about six days for a nice basil tomato vodka. Um, another one, red pepper, peppercorn and thyme. So half a red pepper, two teaspoons of black peppercorns, several stems of thyme infused in your vodka, again, for about six days. Um... So those are often served as like an aperitif with dinner uh, in between courses. Then you've got one with more of a bite um, is your garlic, garlic jalapeno vodka. So one jalapeno, remove the seeds, cut it in half, two garlic bulbs peeled, infused in your vodka for again about six days. I've had, um, I just wanted to say I've had garlic vodka. They, yes. There's a bar in uh, in London in Soho called Garlic Gar- and Shots. Yeah. Their famous offering is a garlic garlic vodka and shot. And I love that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I do like the garlic shots. Um. So yeah, moving on from the intense flavors, something quite refreshing for the summer would be a cucumber thyme vodka. So one small cucumber cut into chunks. Several sprigs of thyme infused in your vodka for about six days is a nice mild shot. Um, and then, again, so you'll have your shots with um, aperitifs and dinner. And then an after-dinner one might be your chocolate mint vodka. So a bunch of chocolate mint leaves infused in the vodka. So no actual chocolate in there, just chocolate mint. That's good. It's funny thinking about, you know, um, flavoured vodkas because... Most spirits are flavoured vodkas, really. Like, gin is flavoured vodka. You know, yeah. it's vodka that has been mixed with juniper and other things. Whiskey mm-hmm. is flavoured vodka that's been flavoured with the oak barrel that's been aged in. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's just... Yeah. I'm still I'm still slightly bemused by the temptation towards vodka in its purest, tasteless form. But, mm. um... But anyway, but I have found the history of it interesting. <laughs> yeah. I would like I've... to try the um, infusions. I think mm-hmm. the closest I've ever got to that is, did you ever do the whole Skittle vodka thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I've done that. <laughs> yeah. I've, sh- I've shoved I'd many like things into own... a bottle of vodka in an effort to make it palatable. But it was, might... you know. <laughs> <laughs> I might try the garlic jalapeno recipe because it does sound delish. Although mm. I'm not sure I can be bothered to filter vodka eight times. Just pass it through a <laughs> sieve, it'd be fine. Sieve <laughs> <laughs> <right>. it. Sieve <laughs> it. Sieve it, then chin it. Do <laughs> oh, you know, to get me in the mood for this week, I mm-hmm. reread um, a Russian book called The Master and Margarita. Have you read that before? I have not. Yeah. It's pretty good fun. It's. Um, it's a satire by Mikhail Bulgakov, 
Uh, I'm not going to do a full book review, don't worry. This, this does get relevant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, he knew under the after, after the revolution, after Lenin had died and Stalin took over, he knew in Stalin's regime he wouldn't really be able to publish this work. Um, uh, he sort of wrote a manuscript, then he burned it. And then he wrote it again a couple of years later, included a character who was a writer who had burned his manuscript. And <laughs> um, his his uh, lover makes a deal with the devil, essentially, to get that manuscript back. Mm. Um, and it got published 20-something years after his death. But anyway, it's very funny. I really enjoy a lot of Russian culture. I love the humour of, of Russian literature and the absurdist poetry in the plays and the amazing like film work they pointed so much in cinematography and film work and the composers and anyway, like there's governmental governmentally, that's a different story. <laughs> but the culture, I love a lot of what they do. Anyway, Master and Margarita, there's this famous scene they're having like a, a great big ball in hell. And um uh, one of my favourite, well, my favourite character in this book is one of Satan's pals, who's a giant cat called Behemoth, and he's really sarcastic, and he's always drinking, usually vodka, um, and carries a gun with him and stuff. If you've ever seen, like, a, an art, like a painting or a meme of a cat holding a glass of booze with a gun in his hand which I have seen very often in memes, that's what that's referring to, is Behemoth. So part of the book says, For an aperitif at this infernal gathering of zombie guests, there was a pool of champagne. Champagne bubbled in three ornamental pools, the first of which was a translucent violet in colour, the second ruby, and the third crystal. Ladies dove into the pool and emerged completely drunk. Later, Behemoth the cat, with a bit of magic, turned the champagne in the pool into brandy, into which only the most courageous, including the cat, dared to dive. Tired after the ball, Behemoth, Margarita and Satan himself drink grain alcohol. Is that vodka? Margarita asks meekly. The cat jumped up from its chair in indignation. Excuse me, your majesty, he squeaked. Do you think I'd give vodka to a lady? That's grain alcohol. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny i love it um that's my top tip if you want to delve into some russian drinking literature there were so many options i could have i could have picked up but um i was like that can be the one because obviously <laughs> every russian writer <laughs> writes about vodka at some point hmm. um the black russian cocktail oh, are you if yeah. you familiar with it have you heard of it mm-hmm mm-hmm uh, which is it. it? Yes, vodka and coffee liqueur. Do yes. you think it's Russian? No, I think you're gonna mark it in bash again and say that somebody outside of Russia made it up. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think it comes from, if not Russia? Oh, America. Let's blame America. <sighs> Partly. Um, it was actually created. Its first, its creation is first described in 1949 in Belgium, oh, <laughs> in, <okay>. in Brussels. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why it's close in a minute. So, created at the Hotel Metropole in, in Brussels by a Belgian barman called Gustav Tops, but he created it in honor of Pearl Mester. Pearl Mester. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she was so she was the U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg. But more prominently, like she was a very influential figure in um, the older generation of Kennedys, like pre-JFK, 
being one of those sort of slightly upper class liberal people um, who was pushing for more women's rights and all this sort of stuff. So she was very a very prominent liberal figure in the US, got made ambassador to Luxembourg, um, like worked as an influ- influential person well into her older age. But the Black Russian was um, apparently created in her honor. So nothing to do with Russia, <laughs> <laughs> apart from the vodka, obviously. But the not, fact not that you the... asked me, I was like, yeah, it's not Russia then. It's definitely not, <laughs> is it? Yeah. But it is uh, two parts vodka to one part coffee liqueur um, over ice, traditionally, the black Russian. And of course, you can make it a white Russian, as portrayed in The Big Lebowski. If you use uh, milk or cream mm-hmm. instead, can you guess what an Anna Kornikova is? Is it? Some kind of weird sex thing. No. It's a cocktail. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, sure. <laughs> God's sake. What podcast are you on? Our podcast. It's been so highbrow until now. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so an Anna Kornikova is a white Russian, but made with skimmed milk instead oh. of full-fat milk or cream. So it's a skinny white Russian. Yeah, of course. Got it. Got it. And then this one confused me. You can have a Russian cherry orchard, which is a black Russian, but with the addition of Grand Marnier. Grand Marnier is a brandy. Yeah. So why is it named after the Anton Chekhov play, The Cherry Orchard? Why didn't they put cherry in it? (laughs) Yeah, why is there no cherry brandy in there? There is actually a Signature Series number one version of Grand Marnier that does have cherry in it. But they didn't specify that. But maybe that's where it came from and then they just got confused. (laughs) Journalists not doing their job with that article. (laughs) I think that's all I've got for you for uh, the Russians today because otherwise you're going to hear a lot more about serfdom and no one wants Mm -hmm. that. Or else I'm going to talk a lot about absurdist poetry, and I don't think we're ready for that either. Well, like I said, it's been too highbrow, so I'd like to talk about some tampons. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Do you remember? I can't remember how long ago it was, but I remember. It must have been when I was a teenager. There was, like, this flurry of, like, concern in the news because apparently there were teenagers put in vodka soaked tampons up their bums or up their vaginas do you remember that i do remember this yeah yeah so (laughs) i I thought i'll dig into that see what's there (laughs) could you use a different phrasing please (laughs) i read into it right okay (laughs) just to clarify um But I, it was quite interesting because I found this website, healthline.com, which is essentially like the NHS website. <laughs> um, somebody was concerned enough by it to write like a, an article on the do's and don'ts. <laughs> or the don'ts more than anything. So they were, first off, they cover up like why are people are doing it. So alleged effects. Um, apparently, people who are doing this think that they get drunk faster. They think it's a great way of avoiding the smell of alcohol in their breath. They think it allows them to beat a breathalyzer test. Um, (laughs) Really stupid one. Um, By doing this, they won't absorb any calories from the vodka. um, And they avoid hangover. 
so this website listed off a bunch of stuff about the major risks. Would you believe there are major risks attached to shoving a vodka soaked tampon up yourself? So those risks are <laughs> the fact that um, although the tampon might not hold a lot of vodka, it does mean it gets into your bloodstream very quickly. It bypasses your stomach. It's not absorbed by your stomach, so you can't throw it up if you had too much. So there's a significant risk of alcohol poisoning. Um, then there's the ouch factor to consider. Um, the thought of alcohol in your private parts, up your bum, wherever. It sounds a bit sore. It is. It's highly acidic. Uh, the mucous membranes of the vagina and rectum are thin and sensitive. So not only will it burn, but it could damage your membranes. And you'll be pleased to know the same goes for alcohol enemas. Um, so Bear girls will be pleased. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite hard to find documented cases of vodka tampons, but there have been reports of alcohol enemas. So... Also known as butt chugging, uh, it, it involves pouring alcohol into the colon through a thin tube inserted into the bum. Uh, so it's easy to consume large amounts of alcohol and lose track of just how much you're taking in. So that, again, greatly increases the risk of alcohol poisoning. Uh, lots of side effects, bleeding, burning, cramping, etc. The one thing that made me laugh was... <laughs> How to know when it's an emergency? I mean, I feel like if you're putting a tube up your bum and just putting litres of vodka or whatever up there, you're probably not the kind of person that's going to be sitting there thinking, do I feel confused? Do I feel like I have a low body temperature? Am I losing consciousness? Am I vomiting? Anyway, if you have any of these things after pouring a litre of vodka up your bum, go to the doctor. It's <laughs> good advice. Yes, Good thank advice. Thank yeah. you, NHS, etc. Um, so yeah, if you are concerned about your alcohol bum abuse, there are wow. people out there that can help. So it turns out up the bum, no harm done. Not always true. Not always true. <laughs> and also, I just don't think I, I... I can't see how you can get a vodka soap tampon up there. Because they get really big and squidgy. There's a lot of... I think it's all about issues. timing. I think it's all about timing. Um, that reminded me that um, a Polish colleague I had uh, once before said that um, Polish truck drivers used to put vodka in their wellies so they could absorb the alcohol through the soles of their feet and get drunk and bypass that breathalyzer thing. Um, and apparently it's also a popular myth around Denmark and, and other places around that. But um, it's not true. I had to inform them. It's not true. That's not possible. Mm. It doesn't happen. Although you can oh, absorb um, slight amounts of alcohol through the skin, it wouldn't it wouldn't ever get to uh, that point. But no, I can see that mindset because when I was a kid and I had a nasty cold, my grandpa always used to rub Vicks on my feet and then put my socks on and then put me into bed. Yeah, it's and rubbish, I'm afraid. Said, it's <laughs> well, not. It's a diehard granddad oh, yeah. tip when I was there. Crazy in. Welsh traditions. <laughs> Go and throw a fish down the well and run around the house three times. I'm afraid none of that works, hon. Huh? <laughs> Let the uh, skeleton horse into Radio Pantry or you'll have bad luck. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, come on, the NHS was founded by the Welsh. The least you could do is take advantage of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm off to put some vodka up my bum then. <laughs> <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time for us to be rushing off. <laughs> See what you did there. <laughs> Zazdrarovye. Yeah. Means tiggy bum health. chugging. Tiggy health. It means bum chugging. Not mean that. <laughs> 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 say that Putin will have us. End of the episode. So let me tell you all about the Russian Revolution. Begins with the Kievan Rus in the uh, Middle Ages and. Um, then I suppose you'll need to know about the Romanov family and how they came about, uh, followed by the feudalist systems and what it was really meant to be a great revolution.